when was the last time you got really frustrated? When was the last time you just got really ticked off? Well, how did it happen? Was it, was it the traffic? Was it work? Was it school? Your family? Was it church? And when you did get frustrated, did you just lose it? Did you just blow up and snap and let everyone know exactly what you think? Or did you just bottle it up and just slowly turn to a pressure cooker inside and just keep your mouth shut but your blood boiled with frustration? I remember the last time that actually that I was really, really frustrated. It was probably the most frustrated my wife, Jemima, has ever seen me before. And it was back when we were dating. We went down the coast to Pigeon House Mountain to watch the sunset from the top. And look here, we did it. Isn't she lovely? It was a great date. We were down there. We saw the sunset. And then we walked down Pigeon House Mountain steps, which are long and dangerous in the dark. But we didn't roll our ankle, which was great. We finally got back to the car. And I turn it on. And there's this big clunk, followed by this nasty squealing sound from the engine. And I was like, are you kidding me? I literally just got this car serviced. And now you're telling me there's more engine problems? I just work at Domino's. I don't have the kind of money to be taking my car to the mechanic twice in a single week. Oh, man. And the car still drove, thankfully, so we weren't trapped down there. But the whole way home, more weird noises coming from the engine. I'm just getting crankier. And dear Jemima's just sitting next to me trying to calm me down. Meanwhile, I'm losing my mind over here because this stupid mechanic, stupid pigeon house man, and this stupid car, and I'm going to buy a new one. And, oh, man, I was so done. I was absolutely out of my mind. Well, I don't know your story. Maybe you've never been frustrated before in your life. I don't think that's the case. And I might not have been there the last time you were really, really ticked off. But we all crack eventually, don't we? In the right place at the right time, when just the most irritating thing happens, whether it's a person or a situation, we just lose it. And this isn't a big surprise for us yet. This is no big secret. You're not sitting there thinking, shock, horror, Jacob, he's uncovered us all. It's because we all know that we aren't perfect. Nobody's perfect. I mean, everybody is nice to their grandma on a sunny day, yeah? But... <laughs> or maybe, maybe some people are. Maybe some people struggle with that. <laughs> we like to think that we're all nice to our grandma on a sunny day, but we all crack eventually. And I know we're not off to a warm start here, but this is going to get us in the right headspace for this passage. Because today in Numbers 20, we're going to see Moses lose it big time. We're going to see Moses get really frustrated before God. He's going to lose his call cool and snap. And we're going to see how God responds to Moses. But more importantly, we're going to see what that means for how God responds to us and our frustrations and our failures. Today we're diving into a story from the book of Numbers, or as I like to call it, the Wilderness Adventures. It's a much better title, and it's actually what, in the Hebrew tradition, the book was called. It was called In the Wilderness. 
not the wilderness adventures, but close enough. And definitely more exciting than numbers, I have to say. That's why I didn't read that book for so long, because I'm thinking, maths, already not a big fan. Numbers, you know, I'm already finding the Old Testament hard. But In the Wilderness, great title. I love it. But before we jump into this wilderness story, we're going to need something. We're going to need a lasso. Jacob, what on earth are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because as we journey through this wilderness story together now, we're going to see that the author of this passage wants us to keep two other stories in our minds, in our field of view, as we go through Numbers 20 here. So I want you to imagine, because we're in the wilderness, the author has got a lasso, and they're lassoing onto other stories in the Bible to pull them over into our field of view. Lasso, because we're in the wilderness. I don't know if they had lassos back then, but they did in the Western films I watched growing up, and that's wildernessy enough for me. So we're going to see the author pull these two stories over, one here, one here, lasso them over so they're in our field of view, and he does that so he can enrich our understanding of Numbers 20. He does it so we can compare the stories so we can go deeper in the passage. So today, we're going to do three things. We're going to set up the story, compare them, We're then going to see Moses' big failure, and then we're going to see how God responds. So with our lassos at the ready, let's start by casting them out. Numbers 20, verse 1. Here we go. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. Israel, well, they've come together at Kadesh, the wilderness of Zin, and Miriam has died. Now, why do we start off Numbers chapter 20 with these details? Well, Bible reading hack, details and places matter. These are the tools that the author uses to lasso in another part of the story, and they set it up right here for us in verse 1. They're actually connecting to another story that happened in the same place, at Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. And we read about it from Numbers, from Numbers 13 and 14. So, why don't we all lasso in Numbers 13 and 14 now, bring the story over, and have a look to set it up for us. It's a bit of a longer story, so I'll just read through the key verses for us. Numbers 13, God's people come out of Egypt, and they're about to enter the promised land. How does it all go down? Numbers 13, verse 21. So... They went up and explored the land from the wilderness of Zin. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. Oh, but the people living there are powerful. And their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness. They complained. And then the Lord responds in verse 21. But as surely as I live, and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, 
Not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. You will all drop dead in this wilderness because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years or older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. Whoa. This is a pretty low moment for Israel, isn't it? A generation is sentenced to die in the wilderness. They failed to listen and obey God's instruction to go into the promised land. They didn't think that the God who rescued them up out of Egypt with miraculous signs and power could possibly defeat these people in the promised land. So they're sentenced to death. And that's why we see Miriam die in verse 1 of Numbers chapter 20. Miriam was Moses' sister, and her death is a reminder of the death sentence that Israel was under from Numbers 13 and 14. See, Numbers 20, well, it picks up around 40 years later, after the events in Numbers 13 and 14. Israel has wandered in the wilderness for 40 years now, and now we come back together in Numbers chapter 20. I mean, maybe these 40 years have been a time of character growth and reflection for Israel. Maybe after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they've learned from their mistakes, and now they're ready to trust in their powerful God. Well, let's continue on in Numbers 20 and have a look at how it all goes. Numbers 20 verse 2, There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die, along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Israel. Israel complains and rebels against God's appointed leaders. They desire the tasty food they had back in Egypt, not remembering how harshly they were treated by Pharaoh. And this is where we see the second lasso go out. Because if you've been reading the Bible beforehand, you might think, oh, this sounds familiar. You might have gotten deja vu. Because this is exactly almost what happened in Exodus 17. And the author is rifting off that story to lasso it in. So we know the drill. What are we going to do? We're going to lasso in Exodus 17, bring it over, into our field of view, into our minds, and have a look to set up this story for us. So, Exodus 17, let's see if it's familiar. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? 
Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock. He did as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Israel has been in this thirsty wilderness situation before, and this isn't the first time they have tested God and their leaders. And the author wants to lasso in this story from Exodus 17 to show us that this new generation hasn't changed. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, Israel is coming back to the same sinful complaints. But now that we've lassoed in our stories, we've set everything up to see how the rest of this unfolds. And now we're going to turn to see Moses' failure. So let's see how everything goes for the rest of Numbers chapter 20. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle, where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them. So far, so good, Moses and Aaron. A bit of a win here. They go to the tabernacle, which is the meeting place where they would speak to God. That's exactly what they did last time in Exodus 17. Good move, lads. Now move on to verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. How good is this? God, well, he's going to provide water. He's going to solve their problem. And this is exactly what he did last time, right? In Exodus 17, God said he would provide water, and Moses did what he was told. So this is looking like an easy win here for Moses, right? He just needs to do what God said. And that's exactly what he did last time. He needs to do three things. He needs to take the staff, assemble the people, and then speak to the rock and water will flow out. Come on, we're talking about Moses here. Surely he's got this in the bag. So, Moses did as he was told. Let's go, Moses. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. And then... Oh no, Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses doesn't speak to the rock. Look what he does instead. He turns not to the rock, but to the people. And he says, listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But Moses did the wrong thing. He completely lost it. He blows up at the people. He says, listen here, you rebels. He loses his cool and he snaps in his anger. In his frustration, Moses disobeyed God's word. 
And Psalm 106 picks up on this story in verse 33. It says, They made Moses angry, and he spoke foolishly. And because we've lassoed in our two other stories from beforehand, like the author wanted us to, we can compare them and see similarities to gain a deeper insight now. And because we've read Exodus 17, we know that Moses clearly disobeyed the Lord here. Last time he did exactly what he was told, and this time he does it differently. This was no small mistake on Moses' part. He snapped. I mean, it took him 40 years, and I would have cracked after one year, maybe six months. So, I mean, credit, credit to him for lasting 40 years. But at the end of the day, Moses still failed. In his anger, he disobeyed God. But did you see, in an absolute twist, water still came out from the rock, didn't it? And everyone got to drink. Well, despite Moses' disobedience, God still provides. And now we've seen Moses crack. We've seen Moses' big failure. We're now ready to turn and see how God responds to Moses' failure. It's in verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. Moses didn't trust God enough to obey him. He doesn't rely on God to bring water from the rock. And this is the same problem that the people of Israel had back in the wilderness of Zin at Kadesh, Numbers 13 and 14. They failed to rely on God at the edge of the promised land. And Moses, well, he receives the same punishment that they did. Moses is sentenced to die, to die in the wilderness and not enter the promised land. And right now, you might be thinking what I was when I first read this. Whoa, death? Moses dies? Like, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty extreme, man. Moses just made a mistake. We all make mistakes. And now he's going to die? I mean, this can often be the hang-up for people when we read this story and other stories from the Old Testament where people just straight up die from disobeying God's word. Should we be embarrassed by these stories in the Old Testament? Let's just stick to the New Testament. There's not as much weird stuff going on there, right? Like, this is difficult to understand. If you're a follower of Jesus, what if you were reading the Bible with someone and you were reading Numbers 20? I mean, how would you explain that this is the loving God you follow? They might say, wait, hold up. This is the God you follow? He doesn't seem loving or kind at all. He seems pretty harsh. He's pretty extreme, man. I mean, how are we going to answer that question right now? What would you say? Well, these hard questions are part of why I love the Bible, because it doesn't shy away from the hard questions. In fact, the hard questions often give us a deeper insight into who God is. In fact, we've already come across the key that unlocks this answer for us. We read it in verse 12. It's God's holiness. God's holiness is what answers that question, and it's what keeps us from having this shallow, one-dimensional view of God where God is just picky, extreme, and harsh. Have you heard the word holiness before? In the Bible, being holy means to be unique or set apart. 
and God, well, he's described as holy, unique, and set apart from the rest of everything else because he alone is the powerful creator and sustainer of the world. He alone is morally good and perfect. Compared to everything else, God is unique and set apart. Long story short, God is just built different, isn't he? He's on another level. He's completely set apart from us. He is holy. I mean, he is God, right? And my favorite analogy to help us understand this at the moment is the sun. Because it sort of helps us understand why God's holiness leads to Moses' death. See, the sun, it's also sort of unique and set apart. It provides life and it sustains our world and it gives us this beautiful light that we see every day that reaches absolutely everywhere. But the sun, oh, it's, just, it's also just a little bit dangerous. Isn't the sun just a little bit dangerous too? It's this big flaming ball of gas. I mean, we get burnt by it if we hang out in the sun too long. And what happens if you fly into the sun? What happens if you get too close to the sun? You die, don't you? You die. And the sun's good, right? We don't say the sun's evil because it kills people when you run into it. And in the same way, God's holiness is good and dangerous. And we see this in how God responds to Moses here. In verse 13, this place was known as the waters of Meribah, which means arguing, because there the people of Israel argued with the Lord and there he demonstrated his holiness among them. It says God demonstrated his holiness among them. But when and how did he do that? When did God's holiness, his set-apart, life-giving power and moral perfection shine into this wilderness story in Numbers 20? Well, we already saw how and when God did this. He did it in two ways. And first, I want to show us that God demonstrates his holiness by judging Moses' disobedience. God's word, well, it brings life, doesn't it? It brought our whole world into existence, and we read about it at the start of the Bible in Genesis. When God speaks God's word, it brings life. And to go against God's life-giving word, well, it brings the opposite of life. It brings death, and it brings decreation. And in that sense, God's holiness is dangerous to us. Because when people disobey God's life-giving word, it's like they're just flying directly into the sun. And God's holiness, it's not just an impersonal force like the sun. God's holiness is much more powerful and much more personal. And disobedience leads to death. But if God didn't judge disobedience and sin, what if God just let everything slide? You know, no worries about that one, mate. You're good. No worries, didn't see that one there, you're fine. Well, if God did that, if he didn't judge sin and disobedience, then he wouldn't be holy and morally perfect, would he? A holy God, well, he must judge sin. But even though we can know all these things and understand that holiness is the key to answering this question, at the end of the day, it still just seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? I mean, Moses dies just for doing one thing. But we need to remember, the holy God takes sin seriously. See, God's vision isn't clouded like ours. And this story about Moses' frustration, his anger, his disobedience, 
It shows us how God responds to our frustration, to our anger, to our disobedience. The holy God is serious about our sin too. And we have the same problem as Israel, as Moses. We fail to rely on God. We fail to love others in our frustration and our disobedience. And the Bible calls this sin. And God will, we know he's morally perfect and set apart, right? And so he doesn't pick favorites. He judges the people's sin. He judges Moses' sin. He judges our sin. And we already all know that we're not perfect, right? And that's not okay. We're sort of done for here, guys. Because we stand in the direct light of a good and holy God, and we are not perfect. We are sinful people who fail. I mean, is there any hope for us at all, or is death and judgment coming for us all? Well, there is hope, and we see it here in Numbers 20. Because judgment wasn't the only way God showed himself to be holy in the wilderness. God demonstrated his holiness by providing life to the people. The second way that God shows his holiness is by providing life, providing life-giving water to the people. And it turns out the holy God that judges their sin and our sin doesn't just provide for them. He provides for us today, for you and for me. This story points forward to God's own solution to our problem, our dilemma that we're in. Listen to how the New Testament picks up on this wilderness story. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus, we found him here in the Old Testament. He was the rock. He provided life to the people back then, and he provides life to us all today. Listen to Jesus' own words about providing life-giving water from John's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. It was at the darkest moment in Jesus' life that we see God's holiness shine so bright. Where Jesus was struck dead for our sins, where he paid the price for our death sentence, so that those who believe in him can have this eternal life he talks about. God demonstrated his holy love for us at the cross. The holy God judges our sin, but he also provides us life in Jesus so we can turn to him and embrace him as a loving father. I mean, who does that? What kind of love is this? So just to get this clear, you're telling me that the holy God who is angry at my sin, my rejection of him, my disobedience, he judges my sin, but he also provides his son to take my death penalty in my place so that all my failures can be washed away. They can be paid for. So I'll be forgiven for every mistake that I've made last week, for all my frustrations last year, and for my entire life, every time that I've been angry and irritated and failed to love someone. 
so I won't face death. What kind of love is this? I mean, who does that? Well, this is holy love. And we shouldn't be embarrassed by these stories. We should read them, remember them, and share them with other people. We should ask the tough questions to uncover the treasure within the text. And we should let the whole world know about the God who judges sin and provides life. If we acknowledge our sin and come to the one who is perfect, then he will gladly receive us. Because he is holy, he is wonderful, he is powerful, and he wants to be in your life despite your failures. This is truly a holy God. And we're going to sing about our holy God now.